All right, my friends, uh, we are in Nehemiah chapter 4. So go ahead, please turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4. We're moving through the book. And I think Nehemiah 4 is an excellent chapter in the sense of it's very, very practical. You can make your way through Nehemiah 4, and without a lot of imagination, you can kind of put yourself in the story, and you can say, you know what, that's the kind of stuff that happens in my life on a regular basis. And so, in that sense, it it very much applies to what we're trying to do as we're seeking the Lord, serving the Lord, plugging away, doing all those things, uh, and we go through difficulties. So our sermon today is entitled, Surviving the Onslaught of the Enemy. And as we're honest, sometimes it just seems like we're being hit from every single side. And we want to keep on, but we're not sure we can anymore. And I think chapter 4 will speak into that. Now, let me remind you of a couple of things where we've been in the book. You know, it's an Old Testament book. It, it accounts or recounts the story of a fellow by the name of Nehemiah. The children of Israel had been out of the land pretty much for a period of 70, 80 some years. Jerusalem itself had lied in ruins or lay in ruins, and God had really motivated, prompted this fellow Nehemiah, a guy who lived in the comfort of the city of Susa, the capital city, and God had really prompted him, you should get involved and you should do something. And so it was on his heart so much so that he uh, made his way back to Jerusalem and he began to lead the people. And as we were looking at the first three chapters, what we noticed is, as he is excited about serving the Lord, not everybody was excited about him serving the Lord. And opposition came its way. And in different forms and different means, people came against him. And we were introduced to three men in particular that opposed the work of God to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And they are Sanballat, the Horonite, a guy by the name of Tobiah, he's an Ammonite, and then Geshem, the Arab. And one of the things that we took away from that is simply this, is that there will always be opposition of the people uh, looking, the, there will always be opposition from people when people are looking to serve the Lord or do the work of the Lord. And maybe one of the most important things that we can take away from our study of this book is simply this, not to let opposition surprise us. Because opposition is inevitable. And each of us, we should almost anticipate that opposition is going to come against us. And you know, we are a whole lot stronger when we know that the blow is going to come. So if I know that someone is going to strike me on on the the jaw or something like that, I can plant my feet, I can set my jaw, I can be ready. But if it comes out of nowhere and I'm not prepared for it, it's more than likely going to knock me off of my feet. And it's the preparation that makes a big difference. And so we prepare ourselves, we remind ourselves, you know what, the opposition is out there. No one's promised some piece of cake or some ice skate in the park or something like that. Now, as we close chapter 2, We see that the enemies of God, one of the first methods that they're going to use is to begin by mocking. You remember chapter 2, verse 19? It says, Sambalad, the Horonite, Tobiah, Geshem, they all heard of it, and they began to jeer at us, and they began to to, to mock us. They began with mocking and jeering, poking fun, making fun. Notice it goes on also in verse 19, and then they move from that to making accusations and threats saying, are you rebelling against the king? Implying, we're going to tell on you, and all these things. So the, the enemy's opposition coming in a variety of forms, something as innocent as poking funny and making jokes at you, but now raising it up a notch and threatening you or accusing you or challenging you. Chapter 3, we saw that sort of the opposition went away, the children had to do what they do, but here they come again. And in chapter 4, the opposition has returned. So by now, you're probably in chapter 4. So let's read the first six verses. 
It says, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and he was greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the city for themselves? Will they sacrifice again? Will they finish up their work in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And Tobiah the Ammonite, he was beside him. And he said, yes, what they are building, even if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Nehemiah says, hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. And so we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height because the people had a mind to work. So we begin in verse 1, and there's that familiar fella, that foe, seems to be the instigator of the group, Sanballat. Again, look at verse 1. Sanballat heard we were building the wall, and he was angry, greatly enraged, and he began to jeer at us, mock us. One commentator that I read he stated that the name Sanballat could be translated thorn. Now, I wasn't able to confirm that in any lexicons, but I would agree with the guy that Sanballat is a real thorn in the side, if you will, of Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem. And I'd also like to add, like a thorn, this guy's a real pain and no doubt frustrating for Nehemiah and the others to deal with. But you know, that is what it is, isn't it? Life, thorns are going to come and thorns are going to go. And, you know, let's be honest, sometimes thorns are going to come and thorns are going to stay. That's just sort of the way, amen over here, that's just sort of the way that life is. And sometimes as Christians, we have these thorns come our way and the pains of life that cause us irritation, and we're tempted to pray a prayer like this, dear God, please remove all irritations out of my life. And sometimes I think God hears that prayer and He says, uh, no, no. I can't do that. That's not a prayer I can answer. You see, because God uses life's irritations to grow us. And He uses the irritations to refine us. And so we pray, God, take it away. And God says, I can't take it away. I brought that into your life to teach you some things. I can't just take it away until you learn those lessons. Now, the Apostle Paul, he shares with us a, a basically the exact same scenario. And we read about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And Paul there, he says this, he says, to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he received, he says, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep, keep me from being too elated. So he talks about this idea of a thorn in his flesh was given to him. We don't exactly know what that was. Maybe it's good that we don't know, because then we can apply it to lots of other, other ways it kind of fits into our lives as well. But here is Paul talking about a thorn, and he calls it a messenger of Satan. Now he goes on in that same passage, and he says that he prayed three times that the Lord would remove that thorn. And I think I've said before, I suspect he prayed 300 times, but three times he got serious. I'm going to fast, Lord, about it. I mean it this time. Three times he said, God, you just got to take it away. I could do so much more for you if it wasn't there. God, I'd be in such a better mood if it wasn't there. But notice the Lord's response. He says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. You see, in that instance there, God was using that thorn, that irritation, in whatever form it manifested in Paul's life, but he was using it to teach Paul a very valuable lesson. 
And the lesson was that God's grace would enable Paul and empower Paul even when his physical flesh could not do so. And God could. God would use the thorns in his life to grow him. So here we are now back in the book of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah has this thorn, this irritation, this pain. And I'm sure he's thinking something to the effect of, why don't you just go away to this guy Sanballat? I remember a story that uh, we were traveling in New York City. We were doing a two-day mission trip. We decided it would be a good idea to go to New York City for two days when it was like 110 degrees. And so here's this team of about 40 of us that are wandering up. I think our mission trip was to walk New York City. Maybe it was a prayer walk. I don't know. All we did was walk because we didn't want to spend a dollar on the subway for each of the people. And we were walking back and forth, back and forth. And we finally said, no more walking. And I said, let's go down the subway. Let's just buy a bunch of tickets for the, the group of 40 of us. And we'll make our way across town to where we need to be to spend the night to sleep. So myself and Kevin Barber, we were leading the trip. We went down into this subway. And nobody is down there. Just the two of us and some lady. And this lady starts harassing us. And she starts saying all kinds of stuff. And, you know, look at you. You got all that money in your pocket. And just bothering us. And I couldn't take it anymore. And I was patient for like two minutes. And I, I, I finally said, she, like, Popeye, that's all I can stand. You know, and she pushed me. And so I finally said, why don't you just go away? And then she went off on me. And Kevin was like, Pastor Greg, you know, or whatever. And so finally we did what we had to do and we got out of there. And Kevin's like, you okay, buddy? You know, you failed that test. But sometimes we just want to say, just go away. Just leave me alone. Stop bothering me. I won't bother you. Don't bother me. And I wonder if Nehemiah was thinking that towards Sanballat. And so just go away. But not surprisingly, look at verse 2. He says, and he said in the presence, that is Sanballat, in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Sanballat doesn't go away. And take notice, it says, he says in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria. Now where did they come from? It started, it was Sanballat, then it was little Tobiah alongside, then this guy uh, named Geshem. Now you got an army of Samaria. Skip down, if you will, to verse 7. Notice what it says there. Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites. Look at all these people that are gathering. You see what's happening is the opposition is growing. It was just one guy, it was his little buddy that came along with him, then another guy came along, then an army of Samaria. And I picture sort of all of this crowd gathering, Sanballat leading the way, calling up you know, to those guys up on the wall, mocking them, making fun of them. Come on, army! And everyone's kind of piling in there. And there's Nehemiah and the others having to deal with this. And the opposition is growing. And again, the title is The Onslaught of the Enemy. It just seems like it's coming at them and it's growing and it's magnifying. And Nehemiah teaches us some valuable lessons as to how we are to respond to that. But here again is, I think, the strategy of the enemy. Start with a little bit of mocking. Nothing serious. For some of us, that knocks us off our game, though. A little bit of making fun, a little bit of jeering, some veiled threats, um, some accusations. But if those don't work, then the enemy will take it up a notch and it'll turn up the heat and it'll increase the intensity. And if Nehemiah did pray, Lord, take these thorns out of my life, I'm sure now he's beginning to think, uh, Lord, you know, I think we have a little bit of a miscommunication here. I said, take them out. You're bringing more in, it seems like. And so Nehemiah is dealing with all of this and the people are back, more intense than ever, mocking. Again, look at verse 2. Feeble Jews. You know, will they be able to sacrifice? Will they finish up this work? Just what you need. When you've been out working hard, rebuilding, putting every muscle that you have into it, day after day after day into a task, 
for someone to come to you and say, your work is worthless and it's never going to be able to stand up and hold up uh, at any particular point in time. Just what you need. People mocking your efforts. Calling you feeble. Questioning your ability. Now notice this guy, Tobiah. I don't know if you've yet sensed the disdain in my voice that I have for this guy, Tobiah. Tobiah makes me mad. I was sitting right in this on Thursday and I found myself angry at Tobiah that I wanted to go out and find him and get him. Uh, forgetting that he lived 2,500 years ago. But notice this guy. He's a funny guy. He says, here's Sanballat. Feeble Jews, what are they going to do? It's never going to last. And this guy, yeah. I, I picture his voice. Yeah. He says, if a fox goes up on the wall, the wall's going to fall down. Yeah, that's how feeble these folks are. They don't know what they're doing. And I hear that, and I'm like, oh, 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 that's a funny one. Or whatever. And, and I, I have this picture in my mind of Tobiah. And that, you know, like, remember the old Little Rascal show that is out there, or, or shows like that? And you got, the, you got the big kid who's the same age as everybody else, but he's like 10 feet taller than all of his peers or whatever. And the big kid is the bully. And then you got that little guy in the back. Yeah, yeah. And he's Mr. Tough Guy. You know what I mean? Yeah, you're Mr. Tough Guy because you got the giant here in front of you or whatever. Well, that's how I picture Tobiah. The, the big kid is big and scary, and Tobiah is this little runny guy throwing out dumb jokes. And he's throwing out dumb jokes about foxes on walls. And here's Nehemiah has to deal with it. And I'm sure he had hoped that the opposition would go away, but it instead has come back stronger and more annoying than ever. And so then we say, all right, Lord, just like you didn't take the thorns away from Paul because you were trying to teach him some things, some things what are you trying to teach Nehemiah? What are you trying to teach us here as we study this book? And I think the answer is revealed in verse 4. So if you look at verse 4, you see Nehemiah's response. So he's, pray, he's dealing with this. He prays. Notice he says, Hear, O our God. He prays. And he tells God what's going on. We are despised. He says, Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Don't cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they provoke you to anger in the presence of of their builders. So what does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah prays. I would have been tempted, I'm sure you would have been tempted, I know enough of you pretty well, to say, hey, shut up down there. Something like that. Or to say, why don't you come up here and say that to me? Or something like that. That's sort of what I'm thinking I would have said. Or a whole host of responses. But instead, Nehemiah does what honestly we all need to be a little quicker to do. And Nehemiah brings his concern to the Lord. And I like to say it in that way, because if I said, Nehemiah prays, you know, we have this picture in our mind of, you know, this fella and shiny lights or whatever, but he just simply bears his heart to the Lord. He brings his concern to the Lord. Lord, you know these people. You hear what they're saying. What's interesting about Nehemiah, and I think a valuable lesson for us, Nehemiah doesn't see prayer as a last resort. And honestly, that's what many of us see prayer as. Oh my gosh, cancer? we got to pray. Call the church. Put it on the email line or whatever. We see prayer as a last resort. Nehemiah, though, he sees it as his first resource. That's the first thing that he's going to do. He's going to present these things to the Lord. And I think in that sense, each of us need to be a little more like a Nehemiah, going to the Lord in prayer, bearing our hearts, letting Him know what it's a concern of our hearts, first and foremost. And then let God direct us from where we're going to go from there. Now, notice his prayer. Very strong prayer. A little bit uncomfortable reading it. He says things like this. He says, Lord, turn them over to the enemy. Notice, turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered 
in a land where they are captives, just like the children of Israel had been. A little bit later, verse 5, he says, don't cover their guilt and, don't, and let not their sin be blotted out. He essentially says, Lord, make them captive somewhere else and don't forgive them. That seems pretty unchristian, doesn't it? You think, oh boy. You know, if we were having a little prayer meeting and somebody prayed that prayer, afterwards I'd probably pull them aside and say, you doing okay? You, sound a little, you seem a little tense. You know, what's going on here? Because it's not very Christian. But can we be honest again? It does feel really good to pray a prayer like that, doesn't it? If you're having a rough day and you're dealing with some people. That sort of prayer is what is called an imprecatory prayer. An imprecatory prayer in an imprecatory prayer, not a lot of mercy. Just some straightforward, it's a prayer like this, God, these folks are opposing you and your work, so get them. That's what an imprecatory prayer is. And we see a number of examples of that in the Old Testament in particular. David, for instance, who bears his heart in the Psalms, a number of his Psalms fit this category of prayer. So David in Psalm 58, he says this, he says, Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. That's harsh. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. He prays, Lord, break the teeth of my enemies, he says. And again, such a prayer, it doesn't sound very Christian, but I would say this, at the very least, it's very honest. And he's just bearing his heart. Now, should we be praying that God would change the hearts of David's enemies and our enemies and make them part of the team? Yeah, I think we should. But I would say this, when everything else in you wants to just sock them and give them one, and repent about it later, you know, when everything else in you wants to do that, for you to instead of throwing that punch, to instead say, you know what, Lord, this is what I want to do, but I'm going to leave it with you, and I'm going to let you right the wrongs, well, that's a pretty noble thing, quite frankly. And so that's what Nehemiah is doing. He's essentially giving it to the Lord, saying they're opposing you, and you need to stop them, Lord. However it needs to happen, stop them. Now, the demonstration to those he's leading so if Nehemiah went out there, put on the boxing gloves, and began to beat up a lot of people, that wouldn't have been a very good lesson for the people that he was leading. The message that he sends by doing what he does is essentially saying, look guys, I want to go down there and I want to have a talk with these people. You know what I mean by talk. Right? Not a lot of talking going on. He said, I want to go down and I want to have a talk with them, but instead I decided to sit with the Lord and have a talk with him and explain some things, what's going on in my heart, and leave it with him. And he demonstrates that he would leave the opponents to God and he would get on with what God had called him to do. And that is to build the wall. So look at verse 6. That's exactly what they do. It says, so we built the wall. And the wall was joined together, it says, half its height, for the people had a mind to work. The wall is joined together to half its height. And that's fantastic. Half the wall is now built. What had previously sat in ruin and was filled with breaches all throughout it, now was halfway completed all the way around the city. Because remember, what Nehemiah had decided to do, rather than put all of the resources at one place and then kind of walk around the wall and build a little bit at a time, he instead split the team up and sent them out to build. So the whole wall is going up at the same time all the way around. And now, at least partially, the people are secure. The people of Jerusalem are secure for the first time in almost 100 years. First time in a long time. The city is at least partially secure. And these people had made real progress toward the goal. But here's an important lesson, I think. They're not there yet. They're only halfway there. And this is a real challenge, I think, because they worked so hard and they put up with so much to get to this place, but they're only halfway there. 
And halfway there is the place where we are filled with the temptation to sort of settle. Well, that's good enough. We're halfway there. We, at least we're partially covered. We should be all right. That's good enough. Or to look and say, we're only halfway there. There's so much more to do. I don't think I have the energy to go on from here. Or like our teenagers, we're never going to get this done. Or one of those things. And that's sort of the attitude that could develop in a lot of these hearts. But it would be a big mistake if they slack off now because they had come so far, and that's good, but to stop progressing would be a real a tragedy. And so they must continue to do the work. I also want you to take notice in verse 6 of how God answered Nehemiah's prayer from verses 4 and 5. Remember in Nehemiah uh, verses 4 and 5, God break their teeth, you know, put my enemies into captivity and all these things. The opposition's against us. Make them stop, Lord. Well, notice in verse 6 that the Lord determines or decides that he's going to answer that prayer in a different way than Nehemiah had thought. And so they are praying for God to get rid of the enemies. God instead chooses to leave the enemies there and instead make the people extra determined to put up with the enemies. And so you look at verse 6, it says that the people had a mind to work. And sometimes God has a way of seeing through our prayers, kind of sifting through the words, sifting through the request, and to give us the answer we really need. Not the one we necessarily asked for, but the answer that we really need. He has the ability to see what we're really asking and choose to answer in another way. And that's why I think it's, there's great wisdom when we pray to the Lord, we bring our requests to the Lord, whether we verbally say this at the end of our prayer or we just make sure it's an attitude of our heart to essentially say, you know what, Lord, but nevertheless, you heard all I had to say, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so Nehemiah's prayer, he asks God to do a work in the, the enemies. God chooses instead to do a work in him and in them. And I think if we're not careful, we can miss God's attempts to answer our prayers because we're busy looking for God to change other people. God, I want you to change all those other folks. And God says, I want to change you. And I want to do a work in you. And I will use these people to accomplish that. And so the Lord answers Nehemiah's prayer in a way that perhaps he didn't expect. Now let's keep moving. Verse 7, it says, But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Astadites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and we set, as a guard, set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So here's this people they had been saying, ah, you're a bunch of losers that have no ability whatsoever. Even a fox will go up on your work and the wall will fall down. But it sure doesn't seem like they really believe even the accusations. Because as the walls are progressing, they're really angered by the whole thing. And you have to ask the question, what is prompting them to hate God and the work of God or the people of God so much so? Because it's not like the Jews are taking away their land. This was like a trash heap that they're just rebuilding for themselves. So it's not like they were taking their land from them. It's not like the Jews are breaking some law or whatever. They have the permission of the king to do the stuff that they're doing. So why are they so bothered by what these people are accomplishing by God's grace? And I would have to suggest to you that it's really none other than Satan. That Satan is prompting them and this whole anti-Semitic nature of these people to hate the Jews simply because they're the Jewish people 
is of the devil. And, you know, in this day and age that we live, we see anti-Semitism, I can't believe it, on the rise again around the world. Some of you probably saw that there was a judge that felt compelled, and I don't know if I blame him or not, but he felt compelled to have to approve an advertisement for the bus system in New York City that says it's the will of Allah to kill Jews. And it's on buses driving around New York City. It's of the devil. And the same thing that we see in other places before, just this natural, I hate Jewish people. Why? Because they're Jewish people. Is of the devil. And these guys here, Sanballat and, Her- and, Her- and uh, Tobiah, whether they know it or not, Satan is prompting them to come against the Jewish people. And Nehemiah is saying, well, please get them out of here. But they don't. So God changes them. But notice what the opposition does. They take it up another notch. It's as if they're saying, hey, we tried making fun of them. We tried accusing them, threatening to kill them or to tell on them, but none of those things work. So now we've got to get physical. So look at verse 8. It says, And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. No doubt, Sanballat and Tobiah would have hoped just a little bit of making fun or maybe some veiled threats would have been enough, but they weren't enough. And so now they are going to have to come back in a form of being more physical. And word of that filtered back to Nehemiah, to the Jewish people. Hey, they're planning to attack us. And so we see there in verse 9, Nehemiah's response again, we prayed. We prayed to our God, we set a guard as protection, and we set a guard as protection against them day and night. Some of us, we see that and we say, pray again? I just did pray. I got to pray again? Yes, you got to pray again. Even though you just prayed about it, the Lord would have us come uh, continue in prayer on these issues. But can I add this here? And I want to be careful with these words. It just doesn't sound right to say them. But prayer is not all that they do. Notice verse 9. It says, we prayed and we set a guard. And again, I'm a bit hesitant to say pray is not all they do because I do believe, and I don't, certainly don't want to give the impression that I'm min- minimizing prayer. But I would say this, we are called to do more than merely pray. And so to say, well, we prayed about it, that sounds really spiritual, but the Lord would have us do our part as well. And it would have been foolish for the people, or it would have been foolish for the people to not pray, to just jump in, start doing things, to not depend on the Lord, not bring it to the Lord. That would have been foolish, certainly. But I would add this, it would be naive of them to neglect the human responsibility and exercise some precaution by stationing a guard. And so by praying and setting a watch, they're demonstrating that their desire is to do everything they can to ensure an attitude of dependence on God. That's the prayer aspect of things. But also a determination to do the best that they can do with their own physical hands as well. You know, it it sort of reminds me of a quote by a former golf great, Arnold Palmer. And Arnold Palmer said this. He said, golf is a game of luck. The more I practice, the luckier I get. And, you know, in many ways, golf is, it's a game of lucky bounces. I've been out golfing. I'm not very good. Uh, But I get my money's worth. You know, I figure you're trying to get 70. I get 100 shots. And, you know, I got more shots. I played longer. But anyway, you you know, you go out golfing. And you hit a ball or whatever. And it's in the woods. And you're thinking, oh, man, I stink. And then all of a sudden, it hits a rock. And it comes shooting out. And it lands on the green. And you tell all your friends, I was that far away. You know, and everyone thinks, wow, you're really good. And you're not good. You're lucky. You know, but one of the things that we notice about it is this. The more you prepare, the more success you seem to have. 
And so I think similarly, the connection that I want to make is that all of us, we need to be men and women like Nehemiah that look to prayer, not as a last resource, but as the first resource, or last resort, first resource. So we have to be people like Nehemiah that pray. But then after that prayer, we need to be diligent to do all that is in our power and ability as well. And so it might sound spiritual to say, well, I just gave it to the Lord in prayer and now I'm expecting a miracle. That might sound spiritual. But let, let me give you this example. Let's do an experiment. So I don't know if this, we have some teenagers here. A couple of you are hanging around. Good. Uh, next time you have a big exam and your parents come to you and they say, did you prepare for the exam? You tell them, I sure did. I prayed about it. And see how they respond to you. Because my sense is, that's great. Now get in there and start studying. Because you need to do both. You need to pray and work. And so, we trust the Lord in prayer. And that's a great demonstration of faith. But we get out and we do the work as well. And you know, what's a greater demonstration of faith? To pray about it and then do nothing? Or to pray about it and then move forward confidently that God is going to bring to completion what He said He was going to do? It seems to me it's the latter. Because prayer, it doesn't preclude activity, it precedes activity. And so we need to be a people. And these guys are a people. They prayed and they set a watch. So it continues. Look at verse 10 and following. It says, Now in Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves we'll not be able to rebuild the wall. All our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Also at that time the Jews who lived near us, that is outside of the city, they came from all directions and they said to us ten times, you must return to us. And so in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Now an interesting thing seems to me to begin to happen in these verses. And that is that the opposition seems to attack them now from multiple avenues all at once. So if you look at verse 10, it speaks of Judah. Now Judah, you recall, was the largest, the strongest of the tribes of Israel. Certainly the strongest of the southern tribes. And here are these people of Judah, the biggest and strongest of the tribes of Israel. The tribe that the great kings of Israel, David and Solomon, had come from. The tribe that the Messiah Himself would come from. Here is this tribe coming to Nehemiah and saying, we can't do it. It's too hard. The task is beyond us. We'll never be able to get this done. And this form of opposition is opposition from within, not with ill intent, just people being very honest that are, their shoulders have sunk down and they said, we can't do it. It's too hard for us. And here, really, I'd compare this to discouragement. And from time to time, as we're seeking to serve the Lord and all sorts of things are happening, from time to time, we get to that point where the shoulders just drop and we say, I can't go on anymore. I was watching a race, a track meet the other day. And it was this weird track. I don't know much about track. Used to be, I always thought tracks, quarter mile. That's four times around, that's a mile. Well, this track, you had to go like, 15 times around for it to be a mile. And basically, they just said, run, we'll tell you when to stop. And so there was this poor girl, and she was running around, and somebody came up to her and said, last lap, you can do it. And so she kicked it up a little bit more, and she's getting there. And then as she starts to come around, the coach comes running up, I was wrong, you have one more. And I saw this poor girl 
she was right in front of me, and her little shoulders, she's a senior, she's not that little, but her little shoulders, she went down like this, she, and she said, I can't run anymore. And her friends were like, you have to, you know, or whatever. And she, she made it around and, and all that sort of stuff. But you just see sometimes I've taken more than I can take and I'm done. I'm done. And the constant toil and the constant being on your guard, are they going to attack us tonight? All of these things had taken their toll on the big strong people of Judah. And now they were beginning to feel the effects of it. And it came against them in the form of opposition. Well, the nice thing about our enemy is he knows if you're having a bad day. And he's kind enough to leave you alone. Is that what you've come to discover? No, that's not what happens. Some people are like, this guy's crazy. I knew it. That's not what he does. And he sees that you're a little weak. And he says, now's the time to really go at it. And so we see a second form of opposition. Look at verse 11. The enemy said, they will not know, they will not see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So they're planning an attack. And the children of Israel, they are made, they are made aware of it. And you know, we look at that and we're like, oh man, these guys, it's coming against them from a couple of sides. I hope they can remain strong. But that's not it. Look at verse 12. Now you got some more people coming, Jews again. I think well meaning Jews, nothing insidi- um, what's the word? insidious here. Nothing insidious here. They're just coming against them, but it, or coming to them, I should say. It says, at that time, the Jews who lived near them, again, outside of Jerusalem, came from all directions and said to us ten times, you have to return to us. The idea is that these guys that are living out in uh, the fields outside of Jerusalem where all the enemies of the Jews are living, they say, hey, look, man, I was at the 7-Eleven and I overheard some people talking. And they're planning an attack. you got to get out of here. And somebody else came. I heard the same thing. Ten times. And I'm sure Nehemiah, after the fifth or sixth time, says, I know. I heard. But we're not leaving. Like, you got to leave. you got to get yourself to safety. Again, I think they're well-meaning They want to help here. Get yourselves ready. But again, Nehemiah has his eyes fixed on what God has called him and the people to do. And that's to build these walls. And so they're going to continue to do that. Now, the pattern that we have that we can take away from this is this. That you have the onslaught of the enemy coming at the Jews, coming at us from all different directions, trying to get us to stop the work that God has us to do. And I picture it like this. There's you in the middle. And then comes this attack from one side. And then an attack from another. And then an attack from another. And now you're just being knocked all over the place. And Nehemiah is going through through it with them. You probably have gone through it. And you were doing pretty well. You were handling the attack from point A all right. You were even praying about things. Thinking good things. You didn't say break anyone's teeth. Everything was going well. You were doing pretty well in this whole process. And then suddenly a second attack came. And a third angle came. And then the car broke down over here. And then they wanted you to come in the office over there. And it just seems to be coming at you from all different directions. And what do you want to do? You just want to give up. And you want to let somebody have it. Or you just want to go away to an island somewhere. Or you just want to leave everything and say, that's it, I'm done. And you can't. Here's the great barrage that is coming against them. And the enemy will look to bring, I would suggest, that great barrage as really a desperate attempt to just kind of wail at you from all directions, hoping, hey, I got him weakened, his legs look like they're shaking, I'm going to take him down now. But here's the thing, if you hang in there now, and you withstand the attack now, you're, at the end of this, you're going to begin to see light at the end of the tunnel. And Nehemiah knows this. And so Nehemiah summons the people, and he says, look, we need to stand our ground now more than ever. And so he summons them. And notice what he does. Verse 13 says this to us. 
he places each man in proximity. They're still working, still building the wall, but he places them in proximity to their own homes. He says there in the verse, I stationed the people by their clans. And you can imagine, with the imminent threat of attack in the air, everyone knows that it's coming, we just don't know when, it's going to be any day now it seems, with this sort of imminent threat of attack, if you had to go off to work, cross town, you think you're going to get a lot of work done that particular day? No, you're not. Your mind's going to continually be elsewhere. Is everybody okay at home? Uh, when I get home, are they going to be safe? Will I know if something happens? All this stuff. So Nehemiah says, hey, you know what? I know you were over here. I'm going to move you. And you're going to actually work your front yard. And you're going to rebuild the wall that is in front of your house. It's really an ingenious thing to do as they work on the, the wall right in front of them. Because if the attack does come, well, then these men are right between the attackers and those that they want to protect. And we fight most effectively when we have the most to lose. And Nehemiah takes advantage of that. And he capitalizes on that by stationing the men, stationing the men right in front of their homes. And, and really, he could have said to them, I don't know if he did, but he could have said, look, the harder you work, the safer your family will be because the wall will get higher and higher and higher and higher. And so I'm going to put you right out there in front of your own home. Also, you notice what Nehemiah does is he puts everything in proper perspective. Saying something like, you know what, it's, yeah, sure. It seems like we're being attacked from every side. It seems like the work is too daunting and we'll never be able to finish. It seems like we'd be better off if we just picked up and ran out into the wilderness here. But then notice what he says in verse 14. He says, but remember the Lord. So verse 14 says, I looked, I arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who's great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah could have panicked. And he could have tried to come up with all sorts of ways that he could possibly think of to defend against the attack. Or he could have done nothing and said, well, you know what, it's going to be okay. I prayed about it and we're going to trust the Lord, brothers. He could have said something like that. But really neither of those, certainly independent of one another, would have never been effective. And so instead what he does is very wisely, very calmly, in trusting the Lord, he trusts the Lord in the midst of the things and he reminds the people, remember the Lord. Sure, the great challenge before us is great. The challenge before us is great, but the Lord is greater. And so he says to them, keep your eyes on him and keep running this race that is before us. And so the people, notice what they do. Verse 15, it says, when the enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and the officials and to all the people, that the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on this wall. So, you know, there's people way down the end of the road and some more people on the other side of the city. And he said, so in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there and our God will fight for us. It's kind of a, it's a fun story. You're reading, you're like, all right, these guys are ready. They're working with one hand. They're holding the sword in another. And I, as I was writing this, I was getting all fired up. I'm like, who am Go out and find someone to attack or whatever. I, it's just I, it's what's going on in me. But I want to take notice in verse 15. 
the victory, the goal, is not that the enemies would pull back. So the enemies are coming to the edge of the wall. They're calling things up to them. Uh, the rumors are out there that they're planning an attack. The Jewish people, they were able to uh, foil that attack and all these things. And you can look at that and say, great, we won. But they didn't win. You see, this victory here of getting them to pull back, it's a victory in this particular battle, but the war's not over. And so they have to continue to go on here. And sometimes we have our little victories, and we think, great, now I can settle in. I can rest. I can stop. I don't have to worry anymore. No, you just won one of the many battles. And you've got to continue on. And they would need to be diligent to continue to progress forward. And so look what it says in verse 21. So they turned back, but we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. And so neither I nor my brother nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. And so they were prepared. Now we look at this and we say, all right, interesting, neat bit of history. It's an engaging war story. I'd love to see a little movie of that. There's some intrigue. There's some suspense. But we look at it and we say, all right, well, how does this apply to my life? My life? And is there anything that we can take away from this? And I would suggest a couple of things. And some of this is a reminder of what we were talking about today. First is this. Don't be surprised when the enemy takes the opposition up a notch. So you thought you won a couple of battles and that was it. But he's bringing it up a notch. Don't be surprised at that. And the reality is, that should be an indicator to you that you've passed the first couple of tests. And so he's taking it up a little bit harder against you. So don't be surprised. Secondly, don't be thrown off your game when the attacks seem to come at you from the left and the right and the top and the bottom. Don't be thrown off. Those are indicators that the initial barrage of the enemy was unsuccessful. And now the enemy is coming at you, panicking, hoping that the onslaught will do you in. And so when it comes from all the different sides, know that victory is within reach. Third, this we learn from this passage, the need for us to both pray and work. And that the two go hand in hand. To not pray, well that's presumptuous for the Christian. But to not work is naive for the Christian. The two go hand in hand, and God calls us to do both. And then finally, the last point, as we labor on, despite the opposition which is even growing and coming at us from all different angles, we do so, most importantly, all the while remembering the Lord. That it's His battle, that He will empower us, that He will enable us, and that this is for His glory and not for our own. Amen? So we remember the Lord, we work, and we pray, and we don't let the enemy throw us off our game. I hope that's an encouraging word to you and it will support you in this next week ahead of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of Nehemiah. And Lord, we confess that sometimes, many times, Lord, we don't approach life circumstances like this as Nehemiah does. And we let these things throw us off our game. We respond in a way that perhaps we shouldn't respond or maybe we, uh, we throw in the towel in one way or another. And Lord, we want to be a people that carry on. Lord, we want to be a people that accomplish what you've put us on this earth to accomplish and the tasks that you have before us and ultimately to bring glory to your name. And so, Lord, I pray that we would learn from Nehemiah, that we would fix our eyes firmly on you, that we'd steady ourselves and ready ourselves for whatever may come against us and that you would enable us and empower us day in and day out to run hard after you. 
Lord, for some of us here that are struggling, it's been a tough week. Lord, we, fix, we figure ourselves, we picture ourselves, and we know exactly what Nehemiah must have been experiencing. Father, I pray today that you would send, Lord, uh, just into our hearts, just a real sense of encouragement from this lesson. And Lord, for those of us that maybe have been doing well, maybe so well, that we've uh, taken our eyes off of the gaze of heaven a little bit, Lord, would you remind us to fix them back on you once again and to run even harder after you? So Lord, we love you. And we're grateful, Lord, just for how real and true you are in our lives. Bless us in our efforts to serve you, we pray.